This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Calvary Online, friends in your home group, today is a great day as we start a new series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. A question that you might be having in your mind as we begin is, what has been one of the greatest influences in your life? It could be recent history. It could be back in middle school, high school, a coach, a teacher. It could be a positive influence. It could be a negative influence. But it's something that has changed the way you think about life the way you think about yourself, the way you think about where life is going or how you live in this present circumstances. Even today, young men and women are wanting to grow up to be influencers. When I first heard that term, I thought they were talking about wanting to do something with their life. They wanted to be an influencer to help shape culture and communities. And what I've come to learn over the last few years is that influencing is actually a career opportunity. Influencers are those who choose a platform of sorts, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, a vlog, a blog, and then they find a niche or a passion, and then they coincide that with the platform that they're on, gathering followers of the thousands, 10,000 to 100,000 should probably do, and then companies will actually entice them to sell their product or review their product on their channels so that sales will increase. Influencers are content creators. They might live together and actually have some of these channels. They want to actually push content out to shape people's purchasing habits and, you know, make a dollar along the way. It's actually pretty ingenious if you think about it. But when we think of influencers today, we often think of those who have influenced us in our families, in our industries, in the way that we look at life more than just the products that we buy. And before influencing was cool or hip, before there were followers and tweets, there was the Church of Thessalonica. And the reason I've been really excited to be in this book is what this passage, what these chapters can do for us, not only as individuals, but as a collective church. The author is Paul, as we'll see in a moment, and he's writing to a church to make sure that they're still doing well. If, if having heard a report from Timothy that's encouraging, he wants to remind them of the hope that they have and remind them of the faith that has begun because they have become a very influential church in their region, in the region of Macedonia, that others around them have heard of their faith. So grab your Bible, whether you're on the couch, whether you're driving, maybe pull over, Start up your Bible on the Bible app and go to 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to see in the very first chapter, verse 7. He says, So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That when he's writing to the Thessalonians, he's saying, You became a model church, an example, an influencer to all the churches and regions around of how it is to live in God to have a vibrant and transformative faith that spreads not only to your communities, but abroad. This letter has for us some instructions that I would hope and pray Calvary would be shaped by. That Calvary, it would be said of Calvary, you have become a model church, an example to all of the front range in Boulder, in Erie, in Thornton, down to Denver, up to Fort Collins, that when people hear of Calvary Bible Church, they hear of this great 
faith. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at just the first three verses today. And in the first three verses, I think there's an observations that we can make about where this church is rooted, what they're producing, and how they're spreading. Here's the bottom line. If you're already like, I just gotta turn this off and go, here's the bottom line of where we're going, is that lives rooted in God produce transformed lives that spread everywhere. Now I just wanna show you where I get that. So here are the first three verses of Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians in God, the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, the first thing we recognize is that this model church was started by this man, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That if you go back to the story of Acts, which is the account of all the, the early beginnings of these churches, we see that the church in Thessalonica was started by this missionary journey, while Paul's on his second missionary journey. That this little missionary cohort, these three, came into the Macedonia region because God had given Paul a vision. There was a man of Macedonia calling and beckoning Paul to come. That's Acts 16, 9. He's in the city of Troas, and he has this dream. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul is responding to what God is beckoning of him to bring the gospel to this new region. And they've been causing all kinds of havoc and turning over the cities for the gospel. The Lord's been transforming lives, wrecking power structures. It's been unbelievable. And as they come into Macedonia, into the city of Thessalonica, it's not as though they come into a place that, they've never, that people have never heard of them. In fact, this church really starts with rather a big bang. And so you go to Acts chapter 17 in Paul's arrival to the region. It says, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise on the third day, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Some of them, hearing Paul's message at the synagogue for three consecutive weekends, come to saving faith in Jesus, but not all. And some who are jealous, Paul says, actually went and stirred up a mob. And they went and attacked the house where Paul and Silas were staying, this man named Jason. And they brought up this charge. It says, And when they had bring, brought them out to the crowd, and when they could not find Paul and Silas, them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So they know of Paul and Silas and what the gospel is doing in communities. It's transforming lives. They say, and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar saying that there is one King Jesus. As we'll see in Thessalonians, this is the big accusation that either you follow King Jesus or you follow Caesar or the world. 
and this church has turned to follow King Jesus. Jason and others are so concerned for Paul and Silas that they actually have them depart. Verse 10 of Acts 17, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogues just as they had done in Thessalonica to continue the ministry of the gospel. And the first thing we have to observe of this letter to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians in Thessalonica is that the church began in troubled times that faith was birthed in the midst of troubles and persecutions. Oftentimes we think when persecutions, hardships, challenges comes our way, that faith should dwindle. But what we see in the story of God is because the gospel comes in power, not based on our own cleverness, not based on our own persuasion or strength, but on demonstrations of the power of God, faith can begin, it can grow, and it can transform communities even in the midst of hardships and persecutions. And that's where this church began. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy have been kicked out of town. They've been run out of town. And, and Paul's concerned for the church. We've only spent three weeks there. Will those seeds take root? He sends back Timothy to get a report. And as Timothy has returned to Paul, Paul is encouraged to hear that this church, in the midst of their sufferings, is doing really well. And that's when he writes this letter of encouragement, of this good report that they are doing well and addressing some issues of where even that they're doing well, some people have died. And they've lost sight of the hope that Paul shared with them. And so he wants to remind them of the hope that they have and continue to build into their faith for the endurance of the days. And so let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. So we know that from Acts chapter 17, this church begins on a missionary journey from this little missionary cohort, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is Silas's Latin name. Silas is his Greek name, kind of like Paul and Saul. And so Silas and Timothy and Paul are kind of writing this letter together. You're not sure if they're sitting down together and writing it as a cohort or if they're writing it or if Paul's writing it based on conversations that they've had, but Paul uses the we, the plural. We give thanks to God. So we're writing this letter to you. You're precious to us. And these three actually form a pretty cool community. When you think of relationships in your life, perhaps these three could give some structure of what sorts of relationships should you have. Paul, if you think of Paul, you may circle his name and you could write the word mentor. He's the mentor leader of this group. And then Silas, you could say he's, he's Paul's companion. It's like co-laborers with Saul. And Timothy, though he's a co-laborer, he's really the mentee that Paul and Silas picked up Timothy. And they're building into Timothy's faith. And so you have a mentor, you have a companion, you have a mentee. You have kind of generational Christianity happening as they labor together. This is a really good picture of relationships we should probably have in our life. A mentor, companions, a mentee, someone that you're pouring into as well. So this missional cohort is writing to, it says, the church of the Thessalonians. This letter is written to a local congregation. That church is ecclesia. It's, it's not necessarily always reserved for the community of faith. It just means assembly, the gathering of people. He's not writing, writing to a building. He's writing to a body of believers. This ecclesia, this church of the Thessalonians, meaning that this church is a local congregation. It's in its local communities. Now, that's a different introduction. This is a different letter than perhaps if you opened up 1 Peter or James. 
that were written to the believing Jews who are in the diaspora or the 12 tribes experiencing this dispersion, written to a community that's scattered amongst different regions. Here, Paul is writing to a specific local congregation in a local community. And this local community, he says, is in God. Circle that word in. In God. There are a lot of things that we could be in. Maybe you had filled in this blank. My life is in trouble. My life is in turmoil. My life is in chaos. There's a lot of things that we could be in that are both negative and positive. You can even think about different churches. Churches are in decline. Churches are in trouble. Or you could say, look at that cool church. That church is so in vogue. It is so in with the, with the community, in the culture. Here, the mark of the Thessalonians, when we look at that first question, what are they rooted in? They are rooted in God, the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. That they had just believed God, that they've just believed Jesus, they have deposited their lives. These seeds in their life have been rooted in God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And what you notice here right off the bat is that from the earliest letters, because Thessalonians is probably one of the earliest letters, if not the earliest letter that Paul writes, Jesus Christ is equal with God the Father. This is not a late Christian development in Christianity to elevate Jesus. No, he was recognized for who he was, the Son of God, one with the Father and one with the Spirit. You can even pick up clues here from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. God the Father and the Lord is Jesus Christ. They are one. And so we see here that they are rooted in God the Father. And he says, grace and peace to you. This is not merely greetings. This is actually the noun form of grace and peace. That the grace would be from God. This is undeserved kindness and generosity. That's the work of Jesus Christ that brings peace. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of wholeness. As this church is being built up, being made whole, being strengthened, that's peace that comes from grace. And so this is grace and peace to you, the church, in Thessalonica, in this city that has rooted themselves in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he opens up with prayer. As we'll see in this book of Thessalonians, he opens with prayer and concludes with prayer. Prayer is the bookends of this letter. And Paul has a vibrant prayer life. He says, we, that's the three of them, we collectively, not just that Paul's praying alone, but that we pray together. And when we pray, do you know what's on our mind? You are. We love you and we think about you. We pray for your faith. But one of the things that comes to our mind when we pray together and think about you is thankfulness, is gratitude. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. That when we pray, we're constantly reminded we have a vibrant prayer life that's consistent. We don't just pray once a week when we gather at the church. We don't just pray once a month when there's a prayer meeting. No, we are always praying together. And as we pray together, the Lord is bringing you up in our minds and our hearts. And we remember how thankful we are to you. Now here's a little structure here. So they're rooted in God. And they're giving thanks to God for what they see happening in Thessalonica. So I want you to notice this. It says, we give thanks to 
to God. So you can circle the word to. Always for all of you. So you can circle the word for. So they're thankful to God for the life, the transformation they're seeing in Thessalonica. Now, why is that important? It's because you thank the person who's responsible for the gift. You thank the person who's responsible for the gift. It would be unusual if I gave you a gift and then you thanked somebody else. If I was the cause of some kindness or cause of something in your life and then you went and thanked someone else. No, we give thanks to the person who's responsible for the gift. And so when Paul and Silas and Timothy give thanks to God, they're recognizing that it's God's work. It was God's initiating work. This isn't a thanks for, man, I'm sure thankful that these Thessalonians, they really have their stuff together. They figured it out. They're smart enough. They're good enough. No, he's saying, I give thanks to God because God was the giver of the work that we see in you. Everything that we see produced in this church that leads to it being a model to all these regions, that is responsible to God the Father. So we give thanks to God. From time to time, I see this commercial on at Thanksgiving where celebrities come on and they're saying this, like, if you have healthy children, give thanks. And then give to, you know, your hospital of choice to help other kids. The intention is so good. What they don't fill in is the give thanks part. If you have healthy children, give thanks. To who? To God. Why? Because he's the one responsible for these things. So we should have the object of who do we give thanks to because they're responsible for producing what we're thankful for. And so because they're rooted in God, they're giving thanks to God. And what are they producing though? So they're rooted in God, but what are they producing? And that's the second part here in verse three. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is in the Lord Jesus Christ again, that their work and their labor and their steadfastness or endurance, this faith, this love and hope is all a product, a gift given by God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says here are these three words, faith, love, and hope. Don Carson refers to this as the Pauline triad. This is you know, probably the earliest letter that it's included in, and it's included in different parts of this letter, maybe two at a time. It's also included in other letters that he writes. These three characteristics, faith, hope, and love. You probably most recognize it from the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where he concludes this, passage on what love is. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Those are the verses you read at a wedding, and it's so sentimental, like, oh, love. And at the end of that, usually people will include verse 13, where it says, and we abide in these things, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And we make it this sentimental platitude, as though it's just like this nice, caring thought. But it's not for Paul. These three marks are the three essential characteristics of a Christian. When you look at a Christian, what is the culture of a Christian? What's the character of a Christian? What seeps out of a Christian? Faith, hope, and love. These are the three characteristics that mark us as a community. And so, first and foremost, they can't just be divided. They're collectively together describing something. Like you don't have work that's unloving or you don't have hope that doesn't connect to your faith. And so there is some connection to them, but I wanna just highlight where Paul has connected them to. He connects faith to work 
love to labor, and hope to our endurance or steadfastness. So what can we learn from that? Well, first is this idea of work of faith. When we think of work of faith, especially when Paul writes it, you're probably thinking ministerial, pastoral, spiritual work. We know that God has created good work for us to walk in. And we're probably thinking these are like the the ministry works of Paul. But Paul uses this work in many places as he writes to the Thessalonians, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Let me point out one that actually increases the scope or the sphere of the work of faith that I think Paul is talking about. So look at chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So what's the work, toil, labor that he's talking about here? That's tent making. So Paul, by profession, is a laborer. He works with his hands and he makes tents. And the reason he makes tents is so that he can provide for the necessary means of his travels, his missionary journeys, so that he wouldn't burden the town or the folks that he is ministering to. He wants to give the gospel, as he says, free of charge. And so the work here is his daily work, night and day, that he toils, that he works, tent making, and also he worked so that he would share the gospel of God with them. And so what we see is there's an expansion of what we, we should have in our mind of work, of all the things we put our efforts towards. What does this mean? It means that the work of faith is more than what happens on Sunday. It's more than what happens in the church ministry. It means that the work of faith applies to what you do Monday morning. I don't know what you're gonna do tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday and Friday, early in the morning, late at night, but all of that work should flow from the framework of faith. Our faith, because we're rooted in God, produces how we do work. We as Christians work differently in all the spheres of our work. That's influenced from our faith. It's, our faith is the motivator of our work. Other people can be motivated for money, success, accolades, accomplishments, for retirements. But what motivates the Christian is the work of faith, is that our faith in God is what actually shapes how we work. We have this ministry mindset, so to speak, in all the areas, Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Our faith permeates our work everywhere. And Paul, as a tent maker, worked on tents, influenced by his faith, to share the gospel. And this is true for many people today. Actually, Christianity, I think, is built for the marketplace. For those who serve and work in the marketplace, Monday through Friday, I believe that your faith is built to live there, to influence those spheres. In February, Intel hired a brand new CEO, a giant of the technology industry. Pat Gelsinger, Kelsinger became the CEO after 30 years of working for Intel and other technology companies. John Boyle had shared with me a podcast that he was on being interviewed of how he accomplishes these things, how he does this sort of work, what motivates him. And Pat shared his life mission. This is what he said, the CEO of Intel, says, my life mission 
is to work on a piece of technology that touches every human on the planet and every modality of life. My mission is to create technologies that touches every single person and every place on the planet, comma, and that it may hasten the day of Christ's return. That's the CEO of Intel, of why do you get up and work morning to evening, passionate about technologies? Because I want to create technology that impacts every person, every place on the planet, that it might hasten the return of Christ. What is that? That is the work of faith. It's not just what happens inside the building on Sunday. It is the faith of the Christian that permeates every area, sphere of work. It's as Paul said, whatever you do, eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. This is the work of faith. Now, no matter how much you love work, you've heard that silly phrase, love what you do, you never work a day in your life. False. No matter what you do and how much you love it, there are days that that work becomes really hard. You don't want to do it. You don't want to go to work. You want to give up. Bills need to be paid. Audits need to happen. And that's when work turns into labor. When we look back here at Thessalonians, this word for labor has in it hardship and challenges. Like work is fun. It can be influenced by our faith. When it becomes really challenging and difficult, work becomes labor. And what did Paul say? When I labored and toiled amongst you, those are hardships. Does Paul really want to do it? Is it easy to do? Is it fun to show up at work at these times? No, that's labor. We often use the word grind, I'm just grinding it out. I got to grind out a few things. But what is the mark of the Christian who labors? Do they become grumpy? Do they become the person that's all of a sudden a curmudgeon? No, what is the mark of their labor? Is love. This is transformational. This is the fruit that it's producing is our work of faith and our labor of love. In these Christians in Thessalonica, when they labored, both Monday through Friday and then in ministry opportunities, they labored for love. Why did Paul wake up early, go to bed making tents? Because he loved the tents? No, he loved the people. So when things became challenging and there were hardships, he labored for love. I didn't want to burden you. I don't want to take resources that could be used other places. I want to give the gospel free of charge and labor with love for you. This last one is when work becomes labor and labor becomes unresolved, meaning present challenges don't go away and future goals don't become realized. That's when it's hard. That's when the hardships turn into real, real difficulties. And what we need in that moment is steadfastness, is endurance. When it looks like the next week isn't gonna bring the relief that we need. When it looks like the world isn't getting back to the way we want it soon enough. And we wanna give up on everything. What we need is endurance, steadfastness, to stand strong. This isn't a passive endurance. This is actually rather industrious. This is, a, this is an endurance that doesn't come from our own strength, but it's rooted in hope. It's rooted in the hope of the return, the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. It doesn't result, it doesn't, the hope doesn't come from our own strength, trying to prove ourselves as though we have the spiritual backbone, we have the, the right tools, and we're clever enough. No, the, the church's attention was on what Christ will do. Hope is faith 
oriented forward. It's the futureness of faith. That's where hope comes from. It's our certainty of what Christ has done, he will do as he's promised. This is where Paul himself, in his work, in his labor, and his endurance, placed his hope is in the work of Jesus Christ, the rewards of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see that in one letter he writes to Timothy. Here in Thessalonians is, is probably the beginning of his relationship with Timothy. One of his first letters he writes with Timothy. I want you to go to 2 Timothy, which is probably near the end of Paul's life, and maybe one of the last letters he writes to Timothy this time. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says to him, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Does that sound like work, labor, toil, endurance? I have fought. I have run. I have finished. I have kept. How does he do that? It is henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved or longed for his appearing. The source of Paul's strength and the source of the, the church's strength in Thessalonica is their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his appearing, is in his inheritance, is in the work that is yet to be done. And so what we see here is this is what's produced. It's not simply work and labor endurance, but it's work of faith, labor of love, endurance or steadfast, of hope that's coming from being rooted in God. This last thing is, well, then how does it spread? It spreads because they're simply shaping culture. They don't have a marketing campaign. They haven't figured out how to use bots and get all new followers. They're simply living a true, genuine Christian faith publicly, and that culture seeps. Look at verse 8 in 1 Thessalonians for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Not only is the gospel, but people have heard of your lives. When they look at this church here, they say, those people work, but it's like faith has shaped them. They labor, but they don't complain. They're not curmudgeons. They're laboring in love. And look at how they're persecuted. And they stand steadfast and firm because their hope is fixed on the work of Jesus Christ yet to be done. Imagine if Calvary Bible Church was known as that so that how our faith spread all along the front range was because our communities heard and saw the way we lived out of being rooted in God. What are you rooted in? Are you rooted in God or do you just believe in God? Have you put your life deposited in, in Christ so it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you? And as you put your attention to God and his word and his son, is he transforming how you work, why you work, how you labor, and the hope that has our attention for the sake of endurance and steadfastness? Now, if you're asking, how does this happen? How is it that someone is rooted in God, experiencing this transformational life that spreads everywhere? 
Well, friends, that's your invitation to hang out with us through 1 Thessalonians. We will unpack this book of what that church knew that you might know as we put our attention to God's word so that we would be transformed, producing this kind of life spreading everywhere. I hope you'll enjoy it. You will join us. This week, there's my encouragement to you. Before next Sunday, open up your Bibles, read 1 Thessalonians three times. It'll take a few minutes, it's not very long. And familiarize yourself with this letter. So as we unpack it, it won't be the first time you hear it. I look forward to hearing how God builds in us a robust work of faith, labors of love, and steadfastness of hope.